0: Welcome to my podcast, Explain It To Me, where I talk to very intelligent people and get them to explain things to me in the simplest way possible. On this episode, I talk to a periodontist about gum disease, gum grafting, and implants. Please enjoy.
1: So my name is Mike Peepgrass. I live in Grand Prairie. I'm a periodontist and I'm excited to talk a little bit about what I do today. What
0: are we going to talk about today?
1: Well, it's we're going to talk a little bit about what a periodontist is and I guess, how my world affects the average person and their oral health and their overall health. And I guess I should break down, first of all, what periodontics is. It's one of the nine recognized dental specialties in Canada. So a periodontist is someone who has a dental degree and then goes on to do some additional training. So my situation, um, I did three extra years at the University of Kentucky, actually, and got a master's of science, but a, a certificate in periodontics as well. And so what my specialty is in particular is like, if you break the word periodontics down in Latin, it means pertaining to structures around teeth. So for me, it's the the gums and the bone. But if you look at some of the other specialties, like endodontics, for example, if you break that word down, endo is in, daunt is teeth. So it's the specialty inside teeth. That's a root canal specialist. If you have a pediatric dentist, that's a kid's dentist. If you have an orthodontist, that's a braces guy, right? Uh, A prosthodontist is like, pros is like fake. It's someone that works with making like fake teeth or like really complex uh, restorations of the mouth. And there's a couple other specialties as well, oral surgery, oral pathology, oral radiology. So all these people that you might hear these terms, they're dentists with just a little extra
0: training. And so periodontics, what is it exactly?
1: Yeah. So my specialty, like I said, it deals with the structures around the teeth. So most of what I do is dealing with the bone and the gums. And we also do a lot of work with dental implants. So both the placing of implants and maintaining dental implants. And we also work with other oral diseases. But most of what I do, or at least my specialty traditionally has been with gum disease. So if you're watching TV and you hear about, you know, it's hard to watch TV without hearing an gingivitis, right? Toothpaste and mouthwash. So gingivitis, I should actually break this down. Gingivitis, what that is, it's an inflammation of the gums. So let's say you don't brush your teeth for a while. You got some plaque on them. They get red, they get bleedy, And that's gingivitis. But the good thing is like gingivitis is reversible. So if your gums are bleeding and inflamed, if you just start cleaning them better and get some professional cleaning, that will be reversible. Like what becomes a problem though, is if you leave gingivitis unchecked, like if it gets worse, the bacteria start producing toxins and then your body wants to fight that off. And then in doing so, it almost kind of like has a battle against itself and you start losing bone around your teeth. And that's called periodontitis. Periodontal disease. So, when gingivitis progresses to periodontal disease, that now is no longer reversible. That is where you are losing bone that we can't grow back. And so, a lot of my specialty is trying to stop that process, but also make things better for people by placing implants, growing bone, things like that. So, I hope that kind
0: of explains a little bit about what I do. How do you stop that from happening?
1: Yeah. So, like the biggest thing is keeping things clean. There was actually a really cool study done. It's kind of a hallmark study in our field. This was, I think, in the 60s. They had a bunch dental students, they I don't know if you could get away with this now, but they essentially had them not brush their teeth for a while. Oh. And they took t- samples of their gums. And they essentially found out that pretty much everyone, if you don't brush your teeth, gets gum disease, gingivitis. But they also found that if you get them cleaned up properly, it stops and it reverses. And so a lot of what I do is like helping people clean stuff off their teeth. If people go for a long time without getting their teeth clean, they get lots of tartar and plaque and calculus built up. And so a lot of our job is initially getting that stuff off. But if you've got to the point where that's progressed to bone loss. Sometimes what we have to do is like flap open the gums, um, smooth the bone around the teeth, clean the root surfaces of the teeth and just get things healthy again. So those are kind of the main things we do when it comes to gum disease. But, and like I said before, we also do a lot of replacing
0: missing teeth with implants. So what kind of diseases do you deal with?
1: So like I said, mostly gum disease, like just gingivitis, periodontitis, but then we also see other things. Now, when we talk about oral diseases, the most common oral disease would be dental caries, like getting a cavity. That's where you have decay in your tooth so that is like the most common disease I would say and then you have gum disease which I deal with and then there's other things that can manifest themselves in the mouth ulcers unfortunately we see oral cancers in the mouth Um, you can see manifestation of other diseases in the mouth yeah
0: so that's pretty much what we deal with what can cause a lot of these diseases like you said gingivitis is caused by not cleaning
1: yeah and so yeah that's the main thing but you know what there's also when it comes to periodontal disease it's not just keeping your teeth clean because for example we see patterns of of bone loss and gum disease in families. So there is a, a genetic component to some types of periodontal disease. Also when people are, for example, if a woman's pregnant and the hormones in the body are changing, she's more susceptible to having gingivitis or gum disease. Likewise, if someone has uncontrolled diabetes, that can manifest itself in the gums as well. The gums will bleed easier. If people are going through puberty, there's lots of different changes in the body that can manifest in the mouth with inflammation. And so a lot of what we do is also educating patients and trying to help them get with their doctors as well to make sure they're taking care of their overall health. And we take care of the mouth and those things actually kind of help each other out if that
0: makes sense. Um, You mentioned uh, ulcers. Are they kind of similar to the ulcer that's in your stomach or are they completely different? Similar.
1: I mean, if you see an ulcer in your mouth, you know, a lot of people get like little ulcer like cold sores, you know, on the lips or the tongue and those will come and go. Those can be from stress. You've maybe heard people call them stress ulcers, things like that. But sometimes people will get ulcers from other things like actually from like tuberculosis, for example, or syphilis, or people can get ulcers in the mouth that are from medications. Part of our job is trying to figure out, okay, man, someone's got an oral, like a a big ulcer in their mouth, what's causing it? Sometimes, for example, they might have a sharp tooth. I saw a guy the other day where he came in, had a big hole in his tongue, but it's because his tooth chip. And so the side of his tooth was essentially cutting a hole in the side of his tongue. But I think it's worthwhile for anyone listening. Like if you have a sore in your mouth that is not going away, it needs to get checked out. I've got a friend who has now passed away, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but he started. He had a sore on his tongue and wasn't sure where it was from, and turned out to be cancer. And it progressed over a couple of years with a number of surgeries. and He actually passed
0: away. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, so it,
1: it's worthwhile taking. You know, things need to be taken seriously in the mouth. It's sometimes a, a gateway into learning about other things going on in the body. So, how do you treat a lot of these diseases?
0: Gingivitis, you said cleaning, but for somebody that has, say, an ulcer, how would you treat something like that?
1: So it depends what it is. Like if it's if it's a medication thing, we got to maybe switch up medications. If, like I said, the tooth is. A rough tooth, you got to smooth that. Sometimes it's diet related. Some people will have an issue with their diet that needs to be changed. But a lot of times, what we'll do if we can't figure things out, we'll actually take a sample of tissue, like we'll cut out a piece of tissue and send it to a pathologist to look at it and examine under a microscope. And that can also help us as well because sometimes we can't figure it out just by looking at it or getting a medical history. We need to have a, a lab help out with that and look at things under the microscope. But as far as gum disease, which is my main specialty, like let's say someone has got their teeth cleaned really good and they've still lost a bunch of bone around their teeth, what happens in the mouth is sometimes you'll have around your teeth, what we call pockets. So where your gums are might be up high on the tooth, but where your bone is, is way low. And so you've got this space in between your gums and your bone where bacteria hang out. And if that pocket is too deep, a toothbrush can't clean in there. And so what we'll do is we'll do a procedure, like a surgery called a pocket reduction procedure or surgery, where we essentially open the gums, clean things out, close it back up. And in doing so, hopefully get rid of the inflammation and close, make that pocket smaller so you can clean your teeth at home so that's a pretty important thing that we do in our field is just getting the gums healthy
0: so could mouth diseases indicate health issues that aren't related to the mouth as in like i heard a i don't know if it's a myth or not but like could a toothache indicate like a heart issue or something like that
1: yeah for sure so the heart we'll talk about the heart in particular there's a nerve called the vagus nerve which that's where pain sends in the heart to this nerve and that nerve also is connected to your jaw and your neck and your head so let's say you're going up a flight of stairs every time you go up a flight of stairs Time you exert yourself, your jaw hurts. Yeah, that's a pretty bad sign. That's like, you better get checked out because that's saying, like, oh, yeah, maybe there's some not good blood flow to the heart. You're having issues. So, for sure, like, that is a, a thing that if you're having jaw pain on exertion, um, it could be indicative of a potential heart attack or a heart problem. Um, that's that is for sure. There's other things we see in the mouth, like sometimes someone will get sent to me with some weird, like, erosive lesions in the mouth and the cheek or on the tongue. And sometimes those things can actually be a manifestation of um, a systemic disease like like a mucous membrane disease that could affect the eyes or even the like the genitals and other parts of the body there's there are some things that yeah like that will manifest themselves in the mouth that then give us a clue to what could be going on systemically and so sometimes too for example i i in my field people can get sent over with really puffy gums we had a gentleman that came in with really puffy swollen gums but it had nothing to do with the amount of plaque was on the teeth it was really unusual and a tissue sample was taken sent to the lab and the gentleman had leukemia oh really yeah so that doesn't have happen every day. But I mean, things like that happen where something really funky is going off the gums. And it's a, a clue to something that's going on in the body.
0: That's crazy. So you you mentioned that you do gum grafting? Yeah. So that's that's another really important thing we do in our field is
1: if people have recession around their teeth, I don't know if you've ever seen recession or noticed, but it's essentially when the gums have receded down and more of the tooth root is showing. So what we'll do is we'll take tissue from the roof of the mouth or even from other sources and sew it or graft it into place to cover roots. Backup. or we will have areas in the mouth where the gums are really thin and we're worried about recession where we'll prophylactically or preventatively graft gums to to keep teeth around. Because if you lose gums and you lose bone around teeth and they start getting loose and that's when you can lose them.
0: When you're grafting gums, do you have to use gum material or is it just any type skin?
1: Yeah. So usually what we do for most gum grafting we do is we take tissue from the roof of the mouth.
0: So we'll essentially like for lack
1: of better words, we'll like fillet a piece of tissue from the roof of the mouth and sew it into place. We'll prepare the recipient site where it's going to go and then, and sew it there, but there are other things we use as well. We use a product called alloderm, which is an ADM product. ADM stands for acellular dermal matrix. So essentially what that is, it is a human cadaver product. So we get it. It comes in a little package and essentially what that is, it's, you know, it's tissue that goes through a rigorous screening <laughs> protocol, obviously, and it's clean. It's removed, removed any cells from this tissue that would be rejected by our bodies. So yeah, that's essentially tissue like in a package. And we'll We'll use that as well in certain areas to to graft gums, and in doing so, it's nice because often you can use a bigger piece of tissue um, than you can get from the roof of your mouth. But also, then you don't have two big sores, right? Because obviously, if you take tissue from the roof of the mouth, it's pretty sore after.
0: And where does that material come from? The cadaver like, material? Yeah. Is it just like can you sign up as a uh, as a gum donor?
1: Yeah, exactly. The people that want to donate their body parts, and and these things will go. These tissue will go to a tissue bank, is what we call them,
0: and instead of a place that um, and these
1: tissue banks Don't have just gum material. I mean, these matrix, they have parts of eyes and different parts of the skin. And in fact, this um, acellular derm matrix that we use, it's used in a lot of other applications like burn victims and places outside the mouth. But yeah, they'll go to these, the tissue comes from
0: these big tissue banks um, where people have donated their bodies. And I'm assuming you'd have to use like a gum material, like you can't take it from your forearm or anything like that.
1: (laughs) Up until now, all the grafting we've done is essentially in the mouth to the mouth. Is it just because it's different material? Yeah, essentially because the, on a cellular level, what we have on the roof of the mouth is very similar to the, like the thick, healthy gums around our teeth. And so if we can take that thick keratinized tissue on the roof of the mouth and graft it around the teeth, it's essentially very much the same type of gum tissue. And so then your body's not rejecting it. It's, it's, it's very much what it's used to seeing and okay. tends, and tends to take very well.
0: What are dental implants? Yeah.
1: So that's a great question. So dental implants, you know, they've really changed dentistry in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. They're very commonplace now. What they are... They are a titanium screw, and they actually look kind of like a screw. And what you do is you put these in the jaw, and they will become what we say osseointegrated, so they essentially integrate with the bone. And then on top of that implant, you can screw in a crown. But you know we don't use implants just for single tooth restorations. There's a ton of applications. Like for example, I saw a lady today who um, is missing all of her lower teeth, and her lower denture doesn't want to stay in. Like lower dentures are notoriously horrible because if you think about dentures, like your lower jaw. Move side to side. You got a tongue in the way. Whereas your upper denture can suction the roof of your mouth. A bottom denture is terrible. So what we can do is we can put a couple of dental implants in the jaw. And so sticking out of the jaw, you have these little, it's almost like a ball and a hitch apparatus. So inside the denture, you have something that clips on. And so that prevents the denture from falling out. So that's one application of implants. Another one is instead of doing a removable denture, sometimes you can put four or six or even eight implants on the jaw and you can screw a whole like set of teeth in. No way. Yeah, no, I get. quite costly to do that but it's it's a pretty slick way to replace you know a completely edentulous ridge so yeah you can dental implants can be used to replace one tooth or you can make a dental implant bridge and replace three teeth or you can like I said replace whole sets of teeth with dental implants so they've really changed the game in dentistry
0: as far as what people can do so how do you implant them into a person
1: yeah that's a great question so there's a couple different ways so sometimes like let's say hypothetically you came in and I had this situation the other day um someone broke their front tooth and so the front tooth all that's left is the root. And so what we'll do sometimes same day, we'll take the root out of the mouth and make that hole a bit bigger and, and just screw the implant in. So we've got specialized drills. I mean, it's very similar. I mean, it sounds crude, but as if you were doing woodworking where you will have a pilot hole that is slightly smaller than your screw, right? So if we're going to put in, let's say a 4.8 millimeter implant, we'll have a series of screws that we'll use like a 2.2 drill, a 2.8 drill, a 3.1 drill or 3.5. And so what happened is we'll make this hole or this osteotomy bigger and bigger until it's just a bit smaller than the screw and then we screw the implant in. And so that one example I gave you is what's called an immediate implant where you put the implant in the same day you take the tooth out. But in a lot of cases, we'll take teeth out, let things heal and then come back later. And once things are healed up, we'll open the gums up and do that same process where we drill these holes and then screw the implant in. And the implant generally what we do is we let it integrate. So usually three to four months before we put a crown on it. In some instances, you can do an immediate load, we call it, where you're putting a crown on the same day or dentures on the same day. But for, as I'd say, as a general rule, we try to let things heal for a while before we do that. Okay. It's a good question. Cause you know, everyone wants teeth right now, right? If you're losing a tooth, everyone wants the crown same day. Everyone wants a denture same day. But the problem is if you have movement of that implant while it's integrating, it just won't integrate. And so you'll come, it'll fall out. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but during this whole COVID thing, I took out a ton of implants of patients that had worked on in Mexico. <laughs> I had one gentleman that came in and um, a denture clinic said, Hey, this guy had his implants on in Mexico. They don't seem right. He came to see me. I ended up unscrewing them all with my fingers, which is not what you want. Like they, they essentially fell out. But what happened was they put the implants in and they loaded it the same day. So they put a denture on top of the same day. So instead of having these implants really stable and allow them to integrate, they're moving. Like they had a little micro movements around them and they all failed. So if you have a situation where the implants screw in really like the torque values high, like where you screw them and they're hard to screw in and they're really sturdy and the bones really dense. Yeah, you can get away with putting crowns on the same day, but You're, in my opinion, much better off waiting, let things heal
0: before doing that
1: as a general rule.
0: So what are their implants made out of? They're made out of titanium.
1: So they're a a high grade titanium and they titanium's, you know, it's not rejected by the body generally. I mean, there are instances, but for the most part, um, even, you know, artificial joints are made of titanium and there is a movement right now where they're making more implants out of ceramic materials, like a, like a white implant. And that would be in some of the aesthetic areas, like in the front where you want things to look really. Aesthetic, and you don't want to have metal showing through the crowns. They are starting to use some, like I said, some white implants. I haven't used them myself personally. I think the jury's still out on some of them, but that's becoming a new thing right now.
0: Do you do the the crowns as well?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So in my specialty, usually what happens is a general dentist will refer a patient to me. They'll say, "Hey, you know, Dr. Peepgrass, I've got so and so here that's missing this tooth." And usually, what'll happen is I will do the implant on my end, the surgical portion, and then I'll work with the general dentist who will do the restoration or the or the crown? And that's a great question because, you know, obviously I'm trained to do them, but in our, the way that the referral the way, my specialty works is I'm more on the surgical side of things and then I'll help the general dentist restore things. Yeah. So it's a, it's kind of a team, a team thing. In fact, um, the implant company I use, um, they give us these little cards they are called passports. So you can actually, if you think about these implants, they're very specific systems. So there's a handful of main implant systems. There's a lot of them out there, but all the parts are so specific. So if I place, for example, a Straumann implant, it needs a Straumann abutment. It needs a straw. It needs the pieces like a screwdriver for that one. If someone's placing a Nobel implant, they have to use those parts. So it's really critical as I communicate with these other dentists or other clinicians that we are, we know exactly what implant was placed, what parts are needed. So any box we open, I have some kicking around here is the implants come. There's a sticker on the box with a serial number with the name of it, the date. And that way, if ever down the road, you need something fixed on it or something's not working or it breaks. You can go back and look and say, this is exactly what was placed. This is the day it was placed. And it's re- that's really important because what happens in my specialty sometimes is someone will get referred to me with a broken screw in an implant or a broken something. And we spend a lot of time trying to find out even what the implant was, like what brand it is. Because if you're not using the right screwdriver on the correct implant system, you're going to strip a thread, like just like a screwdriver, or you're going to wreck something. So it's really critical that that information is passed along.
0: Like screw kind of attaches to the, the bone or... Or does it stay in the gum?
1: So I'll tell you. So, the, the implant itself, what we call is like the implant body, which is the actual implant, like that's the screw. But inside the implant is a little screw that screws in the crown, if that makes sense. So, you have like your main body, which is an implant, which is a screw. And then a piece of metal or a crown screws into the implant. And that's a really tiny screw. And so, you got to be really careful. You're using the right screwdriver for that screw that goes in the implant, or else you could strip it. And then that becomes a real problem.
0: So, when you do these procedures, are are people awake or do you put them under sedation? Yeah.
1: that's a great question. So dentistry, everything we do in dentistry involves local anesthesia. That's like the needle to freeze or numb the area, right? So that's a given. But there are a lot of different levels of sedation. So you probably hear what people talking about laughing gas or nitrous. Have you ever had laughing gas yourself? Yes, I have. Okay, so you know about it. Yeah. So that's a pretty common thing in dentistry. What I do a fair bit of for my procedures, because if what I'm doing often, the procedures are longer, they're more invasive. I do what's called an IV moderate conscious sedation. So I'll put an IV in the arm or the hand and give medication. So people are breathing on their own. They're comfortable, but the medication I give has amnestic properties. So people usually forget pretty much everything that happens after that IV gets gone and patients are conscious and awake enough that if I need them to move their head, they can a little bit. Um, a lot of patients say it's like being really drunk, but usually what happens with the procedures I do is at the end, as we quit giving medication, they say something like, Oh, are we about? to get started or i'm like hey it's home time so (laughs) it's a nice way to do there's other types of sedation that i personally don't do a lot of like oral sedation have you ever done oral sedation where you take a pill no that's that's pretty common in dentistry the problem in my opinion with oral sedation is you're kind of guessing right you give someone a pill and you look at their age their height their weight all these things and you give them a dose that you hope is going to work for them. Whereas with an IV, which what I like to do is you can titrate the medication so you can give more medication as needed, right? So if the person's not sedated enough, you can give more medication to achieve the desired effect that you're looking for. Also, it's safe. Like, let's say there was ever an emergency where we had to reverse the sedation, like something was going wrong. We can give a medication, which is a reversal medication
0: that essentially stops the sedation. Then do they kind of come to immediately or does it take a little bit?
1: Yeah, personally, I don't ever, give reversals, I don't have to because I don't over-sedate people. But as an example, I don't know if you've ever seen this. I've seen it a few times now, unfortunately, firsthand. If you ever meet someone that's overdosing on drugs and they give them a reversal called Narcan, it's like an immediate coming back to normal, like where the the drug it seemingly wears off really quick. So we have the ability to do that if we had to, but we don't. But the IV is very safe and patients seem to really like it. It's actually pretty frequent. I have a patient that calls back and says, hey, can I just come back for the sedation sometime? Like, ah, I mean, I could lose my my job if you did that no but if you need any more work we can do that but it's a it's a really nice way to do sedation and it makes life honestly easier for me and
0: the patient what would the station be made out of
1: so what we do is we hang a bag that has essentially like salt water and then i use a combination of two different drugs one is a benzodiazepine it's kind of like have you ever heard of valium yeah yeah so it's that kind of drug and the other drug i use is an opioid fentanyl is actually the drug i use and so combined those give a sedative effect where people are just like super calm um the opioid also helps with pain. So don't seem to have pain as much. And the benzo that gives a huge amnestic effect. So just you kind of forget things. And that's that's essentially what the combo that we use in my practice is for. Now, on occasion, you'll have a patient that's really unhealthy or for whatever reason needs to be seen in more of a hospital setting. And in a situation like that, you could have a medical doctor, an anesthesiologist do a general sedation where they're now offering a different combination of drugs to put
0: someone to, completely to sleep, if that makes sense are they actually asleep at that point or are they
1: in a general sedation? Yes. I mean they a lot of times will put a they will put a tube down the throat of the nose to essentially breathe for the patient and but that is a level of sedation that's way beyond what I mine is like I said a moderate conscious where people are kind of in and out, they're super drowsy, they're super comfortable, but for what I do I'd say 99% of the time that's
0: a really good setup. With IV, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you're going into like a like a vein. How does that work, like an IV sedation?
1: Yeah, so essentially what you do is you need to find a vein somewhere on the arm or the hand. I had a patient recently actually that has a connective tissue disorder. And so she, her arms don't bend. And so doing an IV on her wasn't an option. So what we did actually is we started an IV on her foot. And so what we do is we essentially, we put a tourniquet around the arm or the ankle or whatever, and the vein will often pop out. And then we take a small needle, a catheter, insert it into the vein. And then we hook up this, we have a line that hooks up to our bag. And then we can just inject medications into that line and that will flow into the body. Through the the veins, if that makes sense. And I'll be honest, sometimes finding a vein can be tough. If someone's, you know, when we when people come for us for sedation, we ask that they haven't eaten for eight hours and they can't drink anything. Um, they can have some clear fluids up to two hours before. But a lot of people are coming dehydrated, right? So if you think about it, the veins are not as plump or as full. And if someone is heavier set, sometimes it can be hard to find a vein. So it's uh, it's it takes a while to figure it out. But once you kind of know what you're looking for and what you're feeling, it's really not
0: too bad. For that person that you had to do it in the foot. <laughs> Would it take longer for it to take effect than as uh, somebody in the arm or the hand? How does yeah, that
1: I, I get what you're saying as far as like how far the foot is away from the heart versus the hand, yeah. but really it all happens about the same. I mean, oh, the blood's okay. moving pretty quick, and and she the
0: sedation for her went went really well, just like it would have if we did it in the hand or the arm. So how do you know how much sedation to use on somebody?
1: Like how much medication? That's a really that's a really important question because some medications we give are dependent on people's height and weight. One of the medications I give, uh, midazolam, the benzo diazepine, it is an age dependent dose. So for example, let's say you're a healthy 16 year old kid, I'm going to give you more of that medication to have the desired effect versus if I were to give someone like a 85 year old adult. So for example, you know, when I first started training in my program, we started doing sedations, it took a while to really grasp that concept. But like working on an 80 year old, I could get a I could give a half a milligram dose of Versed and have the patient could be snoring away, I could give a young person, you know, 10 times that amount and they might just be chatting away. And Mm -hmm. so age is a big factor, but how do I know how much to give? And that's why the titrating is we titrate to effect. We say, so for example, let's say I have you in the chair and I'm going to do a dental implant on you. I will give you a little bit of drug first, uh, just a little bit, just to make sure that you respond. Okay. to it. You don't have any sort of weird reaction. And then I will give more and then I'll wait, you know, five to eight minutes. And if you feel and look comfortable and we're happy, we'll start working. But if, if I think that you should be more deeply sedated, then I give more medication. So it's a a titrated effect. So we give a little bit of time to we achieve where we want you to be. And then we proceed. And in a long procedure, like let's say I'm doing an hour to an hour and a half procedure, we'll have to, I mean, for lack of better words, kind of top you off throughout the procedure. So it might be one of those things where every 10 or 15 minutes, we give a little more medication. And when we do this, we monitor a lot of things. We monitor the breathing. I actually have something that goes on the neck of the patient connected to a Bluetooth earpiece that I wear, and I can hear your breathing. So I can hear the patient breathing through my earpiece. We have three leads that monitor the heart rate. We can see the rhythm of the heart. We have something on the finger that measures how much oxygen saturation there is in the blood. And so there's a lot of, a lot of ways we monitor just how your body's responding to the sedation. Cause I want the patient to be comfortable, but not too comfortable, right. Where we're having issues. The one medication I give, I've never seen this knock on wood. I hope I never do, but you can have what's called chest wall rigidity, where if you give too much, too fast, the chest wall will stop moving. And then the per- patient would stop breathing. And so, you know, you'd have to give a ton of medication for that to happen, but you're better off giving small doses to achieve the desired effect than dumping a whole bunch of medication at once and hope you didn't give too much. If that makes sense.
0: In the movies, you always see them say like, oh, count back from 100. Mm -hmm. Is that actually what you do?
1: No, because like like I said, for my sedation, like if you're doing a general sedation, yeah, for sure, where they're going to hit you hard and fast and knock you right out. Like, I mean, you probably knew this, but I had brain surgery a little over a year ago. And it was very much like that, where they like put the gas on your face. And it's like, yeah, you're out. This is different, because we're not trying to knock you all the way out. We're just trying to get you comfortable. This is different. But usually patients don't remember much of anything. So what may seem like an, you know, an hour for me working, I might be sweating away for a patient. It might seem like five
0: minutes. Do any of your patients ever try to fight it?
1: Well, that's a good question. At You know, as it, as it's starting, yeah, patients, like I had a kid the other day, I was doing some work on him. he said, Oh, my friend challenged me to see how long I could stay awake for. You almost take it as a personal challenge to give him a bunch of meds, but no, I didn't do that. But um, he, uh, yeah, he was like trying to fight it, but the, the medications are powerful. I mean, if they're flowing in you and you respond how you should, it's kind of hard to fight that stuff.
0: How come when you see dads for like toothpaste, it always says like nine out of 10 dentists sure. approve. Why is there that one dentist that's gone rogue?
1: You know what? I don't even know where these things come from. Patients always ask me like, what's the best toothpaste? What's the best toothbrush? And I pretty much tell them always the same thing. The one that you use is the best one. <laughs> like most of these toothpastes are going to do the same thing. I-, I will say there are some like Sensodyne, for example, it's good to sensitivity. And there's some that have more whitening things in them. But as far as gum disease is concerned, the best toothpaste is the one you use. And realistically, for toothpaste, you know, there have been some studies that say the toothpaste doesn't even really matter. It's almost more for breath and flavoring. Like you could brush your teeth and clean them with a, with just a wet toothbrush. And if you're doing it right, you're probably gonna be just as good as anyone else. But where these studies actually come from? I'm not sure because I don't
0: do them. So, but
1: honestly, any of those toothpastes out there are going to be good. It's, it's a lot of marketing, right? Every, every company is just trying to sell their product.
0: Then I wonder why they would say like nine out of 10 approved. Oh, cause I'm sure that there are surveys like every now and then I'll see a survey come through where you get
1: I mean, they even have these ones that pay you. They'll pay you 15 bucks if you take a survey or I've done a bunch of them. I used to do them all the time, but it does not it's not really worth my time anymore. But every now and then, yeah, you get a survey and they'll ask questions about different products and whatnot. But honestly, I think a lot of dentists approve, give a good approval of whichever company is giving the most free samples. That's what it seems like. Because most of these toothpaste companies, if you go to a big conference or a convention, they'll give you bags full of free stuff that you can try when you get to your office. And it's, it's a lot of marketing, honestly. Right. I will say though, there are some studies that suggest that an electric toothbrush might be slightly better than a mechanical toothbrush, but really at the end of the day, if people are brushing their teeth properly and doing it a couple times a day, using some floss, I think it matters so much less of what you're using, but more that how you're using it, how frequently you're using it, if that makes sense.
0: Going back to the gum disease thing, what, like, I know it's, you know, there's a, probably a lot of things to look for, but like, what kind of things should people be looking for?
1: You know, I would say a common thing is bleeding when flossing. So if
0: your teeth, if your
1: gums tend to bleed easy, that's a, a pretty good sign that you've got some gingivitis. You should probably get regular cleanings, you know, work better brushing, flossing. If you notice your gums receding, like if you notice the, the height of the gums changing, that's something you want to get checked out. You know, one thing that we didn't talk touch on that I really should have. You know, one of the hugest risk factors for gum disease is smoking. And I should have mentioned that. I probably should have mentioned that a dozen times already, because when you think of a lot of things that happens in the mouth, like oral cancers, smoking is usually a big factor. I had a gentleman recently, actually was referred here from British Columbia because we're pretty close to the border up here. He came in with a big black spot on the roof of his mouth. And I'm looking at the same thing like, oh, this does not look good. Turns out he is a longtime smoker and we cut a piece of it out, sent it to a specialist in Edmonton. And sure enough, this gentleman has cancer on the roof of his mouth. And he's now being seen by a head and neck specialist to try to get that under control. But yeah, I I would be, um, it'd be bad of me not to throw a warning about smoking because smoking is a huge contributing factor to gum disease and bone loss and really other bad stuff in the mouth, not to mention
0: lung cancer. How does smoking affect the gums?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So what it does in a lot of ways, smoking affects the blood flow in the gums. So the way that blood moves to the gums is affected. So ironically, it seems kind of weird that I just mentioned saying that bleeding is an indicator of disease. If you smoke, the gums tend to bleed less even. So it's almost deceptive because the gums aren't bleeding as much, but that's because the blood's not flowing as well through them. So there is that component. Also, for whatever reason in smoking, the plaque seems to build up quicker and there's different bacteria that are found in a mouth when people are smoking. And so for a variety of reasons, smoking just is it's almost like a, a perfect storm for, for bad things in the mouth. And if you combine that with bad hygiene, like if you have stuff building up on the teeth and smoking, and if you maybe have like a genetic predi- like a disposition to have gums, like your if your family had gum disease, sorry, then it can be real bad.
0: Yeah, because I, f- I find that when people talk about smoking, they just finally focus on the lung disease, right? Or the lung, yeah. lung cancer. <laughs> it's good that you point out the gum disease.
1: Oh yeah. When someone comes to me that's referred here for periodontitis, gum disease, pretty much like what I've got a, a worksheet that I go through and the two questions I ask every patient if they've got gum disease are, do you have diabetes and are you a smoker? Because quite often the answer is yes to one or both of those if there's advanced or
0: significant gum disease. How does diabetes affect the gum? Disease?
1: Yeah. So diabetes, it, it, it affects really lots of parts of the body as far as how we heal you probably heard of people getting diabetes that like might have toe or foot wounds that don't heal properly um so that's a lot of it too for example if i'm doing a bunch of work on someone like taking teeth out or doing some gum surgery with someone who has diabetes especially if it's uncontrolled i will often give an antibiotic ahead of time or at the time of surgery because there may be an infection so that's one thing is just the body does it, there's much there's just more inflammation and the body doesn't heal as well and that goes for the gums as well and so it's you know there's been studies i can't cite the actual study right now but where they've talked about a correlation between oral health diabetes and blood sugar that as gums has gotten healthier there's been a change in blood sugar and vice versa and so yeah there's a there's a huge you know a lot of these things we talk about oral health and the body we can't say definitively that one causes the other but we can say there's definitely a correlation
0: between them yeah yeah i think that might be
1: all my questions is there okay well else? yeah i hope i hope it
0: offered a little bit of insight into kind of what we do and
1: and stuff cool
0: well thank you very much man okay we'll see you well that was neat thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed on the next episode we talk about reiki